Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. Two months ago, we hosted what we hoped would be our final COVID-19 roundtable. Infections were declining, and we seemed to be entering into a new and safer normal. Wishful thinking. Today, we stand on the shoreline, the water level is rising, and we await the tidal wave named Omicron we know is about to hit. So, it's bittersweet that we find ourselves speaking yet again with our COVID-19 roundtable guests to clarify what we know and don't know about this variant and its potential impact. Let's listen in. At the table today, we have Dr. Kara Guerin, ER physician at Valleywise Health. Dr. Guerin, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for inviting me back. And from ASU's Biodesign Institute, the Executive Director, Dr. Joshua LaBert. Josh, good to see you. Good to see you as well. I'm, I'm not happy to have this meeting, but I am happy to be in this company. <laughs> and the Executive Director of the Arizona Public Health Association, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you today? Delightful. It was about two months ago in the last episode that we did, we were all feeling cautiously optimistic we kind of had the theory that there was only so much fuel that was left for the Delta variant to burn through. And that proved not necessarily to be the case. And we also did not anticipate this Omicron variant. Yeah, exactly. Um, Basically is a new virus, a variant of this virus that now has a whole new fuel source for it to burn through. Let's dive in. Dr. LeBaire, Josh, Omicron, what do we know about this thing? What do we know about its transmissibility? What, are, what do we know about its severity? And what can we expect in the near future from, from this new variant? So this variant was first noted in South Africa. It started taking over the population there pretty quickly, so replacing Delta. Now, one important point to mention there was at that time in South Africa, the Delta variant was on the decline. So there was reduced numbers of the Delta So it wasn't clear whether this increased transmissibility was truly increased transmissibility or whether it was just replacing this other variant. But since then, we are now observing that it's rapidly taking over in places that have an entrenched high level of Delta. So it is clearly more transmissible than the Delta variant was. It is notable because it has a lot of mutations compared to Delta, and some of those mutations are associated with other viruses that have shown the ability to escape the immune system, and uh, especially the 484 mutant and some others, make us think that this may be able to escape the immune system. And there are now some laboratory data to suggest that that is the case. A couple of things worth noting here. One is a a recent study out of South Africa that is not peer-reviewed yet, so it's it's a preprint. But it does indicate that in just about every way, the the Omicron variant is less susceptible to the vaccine protection than the Delta variant was. In terms of getting an infection, or do they know in terms of hospitalization? They, they have too? data on both infection and severity of and then hospitalizations. That said, it is also clear that the effect is much greater on just getting an infection than it is on hospitalization. So people who've had only two doses of vaccination, so the original two doses, you know, speaking specifically here of the Pfizer vaccine, there are some more hospitalizations, 
but it's not common. They're still 70% protected or more. Even the original vaccination schedule looks to be pretty good. The other bit from this study was that booster really made a big difference. It took people from what was down in the 33% protection range of against getting an infection up to over 75% protected. So boosters made a big difference in their study. So there's definitely value to a booster and something that we would recommend here vigorously, that there's really value in that. We have to remember that escape from immunity means two things. One is kind of reduced antibody levels. And I typically think of antibody levels as sort of first line of defense that prevents infection. But then this gets at what you were asking, Will, which is this question of other protection, which is probably from, from severe infection. When that's probably involving the cellular immune system, the T cells and whatnot. And there, I think it's probably not escaping that as much. Well, I mentioned already that it's, it's running quickly in England. It's doubling every three to four days there. So it is really taking over very quickly. And in other places where it's gotten in, it it's, seems to be running pretty quickly. It's, it's, the transmission curve is astonishing. It's like sidewalk meets building. It's not like, you know, this gradual climb up a mountain that you typically see in these curves. It just like shoots straight up. So it, it does seem to spread very quickly. In terms of severity, I think the jury's still out. There's been some suggestion from South Africa that, this, that the infection is not as severe, but the caution there is that the population that it was spreading in is a younger population who already don't get very severe infections. And the other people that it's been infecting are people who are already vaccinated. And again, they typically don't get very severe infections. And as Will and others will say, Severe infections, ICU visits, and certainly death are all lagging indicators. So they won't show up for a little while. And this is so new, it's hard to say. Last thing I'll say, because I've been talking for a while here, um, it's here. It's in Arizona. We're seeing a number of cases of it now. At ASU, we do the TACPATH study, the three-gene study. So we would pick this up, and we do pick this up as an S-gene dropout. So much like what we were doing back when we were looking at the alpha variant, we can pick this guy up because the S gene drops out. And so we see that before people even have a chance to sequence it. So far, we've seen a number of these S gene dropouts in the last five or six days. And when when Ephraim Lim, our professor who does the sequencing, sequences them, they've all turned out to be Omicron. So it's here in Arizona. And I'm sure that means it's the tip of the iceberg, which means that we're seeing some of the cases, but there are many more. And so we need to be prepared that this thing is going to take off quickly here. Is taking off. We just is is it's, taking off. It's in process, yeah. Do we know anything about the transmissibility or severity for individuals who have previously been infected? With Delta, does Omicron evade that immune response as well? More generally speaking, the data that I have observed, let's take the two cases. If they've not been vaccinated, then it's a little bit less predictable. People who've not been vaccinated sometimes get a good response, sometimes don't, if just from natural infection. If they have been vaccinated, those people have the best response of everybody. They have just huge antibody levels and seem to be very well protected. So that's that's what we know so far. Yeah, people that got an infection and then got 
vaccinated are in really good shape protection wise yeah they have it's like a hybrid sort of immunity right because they have the immunity from the neocapsid all that those diverse parts of the immune system and then on top of that the real focused protection that comes with the vaccine and the spike and then i have to throw this in and kara i'm sure it resonates with you too as a parent with young children, what do we know about this thing? Does, do we know anything about how it spreads amongst youth and the severity amongst younger populations? In my understanding, we don't know much. We had this initial suggestion in South Africa that there were all these children being hospitalized. But my understanding is that that's not really a clear indication. You know, is it because they were so worried and so they're hospitalizing at lesser symptoms or not. Is that what you understand? Yeah, there was some suggestion that there was a 20% increase in hospitalization, but you're talking about 20% on top of a small number. So because children in general don't end up in the hospital. So this is not something to get panicked about or get too fearful about because children already don't get hospitalized often. When are we going to hit herd immunity? It's not going to happen. This is going to end up being an endemic illness that's no longer a public health emergency after Omicron rips through the globe. And that'll build the the pool of T-cells and antibodies among 7 billion people, some of whom will have been infected, some will have been vaccinated, some both. And at that point, it no longer becomes such a lethal thing because there's this residual of antibodies and T-cells in people, and it will always, it's going to, we already know there's breakthroughs that are going to keep happening, but be less and less community spread because the pool of totally unvaccinated people will become less over time, and then it will always just be here, but it won't be like a public health emergency anymore. That's what I think. I read somewhere that they think maybe COVID will become seasonal. I will say there are some weird aspects to this. You know, the fact that there was this sort of stripe down the Rocky Mountains for a while, whole regions get it at different times of year. It does make you wonder. I don't have a good explanation for it, but if you look at the map of the country and where it's hitting at any given time, it does look like it has sort of a regional element to it at certain times of year. So who knows? I mean, here we are, you know, heading into this big surge in Arizona, not far from when we had it last year. All right, so 2022 resolution is to get to that future that Will just described where this thing is endemic but is far less lethal and eventually fades off because everybody has antibodies and T-cell immunity that squashes it. Right, and plus, as it becomes endemic, people are going to get infected at a younger age when it has less consequences. And Mm -hmm. hopefully that will, over time, build up an immunity that prevents the severe part of it. Dr. Guerin, I know it's kind of a bleak situation. We hear about it on the news regularly. It doesn't seem like the situation in the hospitals and the ERs and ICUs is getting any better. It's actually approaching pretty dangerous level. Give us a sense on what things are like on the ground. You know, we hear the numbers in the news and we hear the people on the news and on the radio, but paint a picture on what it's like actually in your day-to-day at work. Yeah, it's getting much worse. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, my concern is it's only going to get worse, especially as everyone congregates for the holidays. But essentially in the hospital now, waiting rooms are packed. People are waiting hours and hours and hours. And I can confidently say that I've had patients wait eight hours to be seen and to not just be seen, but also get their care because everything is so full. People who are not significantly ill and are going to get discharged 
oftentimes don't get to see the inside of a hospital room because their care has to be given in a place that we're not used to giving care. People are being seen in the emergency department and oftentimes never even get a hospital bed. In the emergency department, we do what's called boarding. So if there's no bed upstairs in the hospital, you stay in the emergency department and receive the care that you would as an inpatient in the emergency department. As a result, there's fewer beds in the emergency department for emergency patients to be seen. So we have patients all over the place. So patients will wait 30, 40 hours in the emergency department before they can get an official bed upstairs. And this is all compounded by this huge staff shortage. I mean, there's staff shortages everywhere, but the hospital is feeling it the most in terms of everything, nurses especially, but techs and housekeepers and x-ray techs and CT techs everywhere. So that is also really limiting the amount of care patients can receive. It, it makes the people working that much more stressed and burnout is much higher. I, I personally know a lot of people that have made changes to their plans in the past two to three months because they saw this coming and said, I can't do this anymore. Whether it's early retirement or taking a different job that's higher paying so that they can retire early. It's very frustrating as a provider and it's very frustrating as a patient. I had a patient the other day that said to me, you don't appreciate how frustrated I am. And unfortunately at the moment, I was very frustrated too. And I said, I'm sorry that you're so frustrated, but I don't think you appreciate how frustrating this is either. I sympathize with patients, but we're doing the best we can. As healthcare systems and CEOs and everybody is saying, we are getting to the point now, I know at least two systems have started to cancel elective surgeries. We know that people are not getting the preventative care they need. Things are only going to get worse. This is not going to get better. And people, I guess, on a more patient-to-patient basis, we're seeing people come in, young people, again, without any medical problems that are doing very poorly with COVID. And unfortunately, we're seeing also people coming in with repeat COVID infections. People who have not been vaccinated with COVID and they said, oh, I thought I couldn't get it again. And here they are. We're also starting to see people with long-term consequences. So a lot of people with long COVID or scarring in their, their lungs from COVID that now get some sort of other infection and do very poorly because of the COVID consequences. And you're with Valleywise Health. And I know that I think it was last night I actually heard someone from Banner mentioning that they're at capacity with their beds. And that I think their statistic was something close to 90% of the COVID patients were unvaccinated that were in their hospitals. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes. We, as a staff, get updated regularly on our hospital system. And normally it's 85 to 96% of patients that are unvaccinated. And it's now to the point where they kind of outline, like, we have this many ICU patients. We have this many patients who happen to have a COVID, but really that's not their main problem. And now they're even starting to having to count the patients that are being held in the emergency department to this number because the patients are being held in the emergency department so long. And this isn't just a problem at Valley Wise. This is a problem everywhere. And it's a problem throughout the country. It's a pet peeve of mine when I see the state health department's website dashboards say that we're at 92% capacity and stuff because they're not counting the ED holds in the numerator. Like they're not being counted. So it's really 120% and they keep publishing 96%, 91% and people go, ah, there's room. And I'm like, they're not putting the ED holds in there. And the denominator includes the specialty hospitals and IHS. So it's like way worse than 100%, but they've made sure that it can never go over 100% because they don't collect the information and data they need to provide real numbers. 
Although I have to say that most of the systems I'm hearing are now turning in staffed beds as opposed to just licensed beds. So that has changed. But the ED holds is the big deal. Will, give us a sense of the practical application of this. Dr. LeBaire is telling us that, and you're saying this Omicron variant is here in Arizona. It is starting to increase. It looks like a hockey stick, not some sort of a nice, gentle on-ramp. Dr. Guerin is mentioning that the hospitals are already at capacity are over capacity. Why should the general public care? I've heard plenty of people say, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm over COVID. I'm going to live my life. Give us some sense about how should the general public be thinking about this unfortunate next chapter in this pandemic? You know, I was thinking about that exact thing driving over here today. To me, there's like two main buckets of people and one kind of bucket of people. So you have people who are fully vaccinated, who've either scheduled their booster or have their booster. And that segment of the population, let's say it's 50% of the folks are like, look, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to go on with my life. And that's pretty well true. And so for them, they're not that concerned because they're not thinking, well, I mean, who goes around in life thinking, well, I might get in a car crash tomorrow, or I might have a heart attack tomorrow, or I might have chest pain tomorrow, or my gallbladder might go south tomorrow. Hardly anyone thinks that way. So they like go through life thinking, well, I'm, you know, it's, I'm going to focus on Christmas. And so like, that's how they're thinking. And you got a big other bucket of people who've chosen not to get vaccinated, some of which don't even believe COVID-19 exists. And so, and the others think, meh, it's no big deal. And so, like, that's another bucket of people who are unconcerned because they're naive. And there's not that many people in between. Right? I mean, do you guys agree with that? I think it's yeah. like, that's the lack of outrage is that the people that are in between are people who have parents in their 80s or something like that who are like, geez, anything could happen any day. And I certainly hope it doesn't happen at least until March or something because it's a world of hurt out there right now. But everyone in that category, you cross your fingers and say, ah, maybe, maybe, maybe it won't happen. So that's what I think there's the lack of concern is because the vaccinated and boosted people feel secure in their situation. And the people who don't believe this is real feel secure because they're naive. That's what I think. I think that they're, at least in my microcosm, we have a microcosm of underserved patients that, for whatever reason, have not been vaccinated. And sometimes it is kind of this, it doesn't exist, it's not a problem, but also sometimes it's, you know, I was going to, I never got around, I never really knew where. There's multiple factors there, but we see a good amount of that too. I also will say that when I speak with patients, because our emergency department does offer the J&J COVID vaccine in certain circumstances if you're not, you have a, don't have an infectious disease and so on. And I've noticed that when I ask patients about it, there's only one of two answers. It's like, I was thinking about it and I just never really got around to it or absolutely not. There's not a lot of people, let me have a discussion. I have these questions and maybe you can answer my questions and I can get through this. I guess with more patients, it's becoming much more like, no, I'm not having the discussion about this on their end. And I think there's another group of people, it's probably a small minority of people right now who have had the two shots and are waiting to see whether or not there's a need for a booster that is actually Omicron specific, juxtaposed to just getting yet another shot of Pfizer or Moderna. Right. Uh, Because I know that, you know, 
we've heard that in the news as well, that maybe that would be needed in the future. Yeah. I think the concern there, of course, is that while there's no doubt the science is there to readily make a variant-specific booster, the logistics in getting that up and running is not trivial. Getting to the FDA is part of that is the science piece, but a huge part of FDA clearance is just showing that your manufacturing plant is up to snuff, all your protocols are in place, that all of your suppliers are in place, that everything along the whole path is optimized and running smoothly and working. And they've got that now for their current vaccines. To retool that factory and add one more thing would cost a lot and take a lot of time. And so I don't think that's going to happen soon. And, and, and it's not clear that it's needed because the, the data suggests that the current vaccines work pretty darn well for that part. Speaking of like a huge factory that you have to figure out how to approve, the communications aspect of identifying to what degree a Omicron-specific shot would be better than that's right. the third dose of virus. I that's mean, it right. would just get so, so complicated and it may get so, so complicated to message that to the general public. It's absolutely true. I think there's a certain element of the, the opposition to vaccination that just has to do with sort of, if you will, contrariness. It's kind of like, you can't tell me what to do and there's just this pushback that I, I don't want to hear any more of it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't know what we can do about that. I, I sometimes wonder it's not going to ever happen. And I think we've mentioned this in the past, whether there would be sort of an economic argument, basically saying you can opt to not get the vaccine, but you then absorb the financial consequences if you get sick. In Singapore, in the past few months, they said, if you get sick from COVID, we will no longer cover you. Now, I don't know what type of health insurance coverage and to a degree, I think some places have that. I have read some companies have said that if you get COVID and you're not vaccinated, or if you don't get vaccinated, you have a higher premium or something. Like that. Yeah, you see, that's the kind of thing that I think would, for some of these contrarian types, might work better. Because then they're going to feel like they're making a financial decision and not because someone told them they had to do something. I don't know if that'll work, but... I read a really interesting article in The Atlantic last week. It was super interesting. It showed that this vaccine resistance thing is not unique to the U.S. It's Absolutely. like all throughout Eastern Europe, everything from Romania up. Russia, it's a terrible problem. And it has to do, at its core, with distrust of institutions. And so that's a really hard thing to get past. Like, the people who have soured on institutions don't trust government, don't trust anybody. And so data, ration, reason, conversations with health care, like nothing helps move the needle with that group of people. The vaccination rates in Russia are horrible, and they've got a good vaccine that works, but they distrust institutions. Same in all through Eastern Europe. And that's like probably part of humanity is always distrusting the people that are leading you. But there's this international populism that's yeah. on the rise. And it's it's yeah. very much the Venn diagram on that is like very closely aligned where the, the attraction to populism is really tightly aligned with distrust of institutions. And that extends to distrust of vaccines because vaccines were put together by institutions, by politicians are saying that they should get them. So that's why they don't want them. What do you think that means for public health as a practice in general, both for pharmaceutical interventions and non-pharmaceutical interventions? 
Well, I think in many respects it's bad, obviously, for public health because you need to have a trust of institutions. But in some respects, the health and all policies kind of approach to public health interventions is in a way sidesteps a lot of that because you make adjustments to the built environment and you are make it so that people are able to make a healthier choice without preaching to them. And so that side of public health policy interventions, I don't think is as susceptible to the populist side of things. But going to your pharmaceutical interventions or where you're asking people to actually do something, that's where the disconnect happens. I'll also tell you that a kind of an anecdotal story is that people don't want to get the vaccine, but when they're ill, they will come in and get the monoclonal antibody um, (laughs) with very little hesitation, very, very little hesitation. And I'm glad that there's this COVID pill coming out. I mean, it's good for like the general public, but it's very frustrating because again, it's going to be seen as a solution. And its benefit is not that big. I mean, the numbers are okay. On the monoclonal antibodies? No, these new these new medications, both the one from what is it, Merck and from from Pfizer, they're modest benefits. Nothing compared to what the vaccine does. Nothing right, compared. Right. I did a, a blog post on the return on investment for these different things, and mm. like the ROI for the vaccine, I think was something like three hundred to one for every dollar you spend on vaccines, you get three hundred dollars worth of lower hospitalization costs. That's what I used as the cost is hospitalization. Wow. And then I looked at Regeneron, the monoclonal antibodies, the ROI for that was about one to one. So the cost of one course of treatment on the actual drug itself is $2,100. That's what the Rogeneron costs for the shot. Because it's an inpatient thing, it costs a lot more because of all the costs that go along with that. In the end, it ends up costing the insurance industry and us as ratepayers about ten grand, And it's about 70% effective. So when... Regeneron is given to high-risk people. The ROI is about one-to-one, but it's being over-administered. And, Kara, I think you would agree with that, that they come in and they want monoclonal antibodies when they're not a high-risk person. And so it's being administered to lower-risk people. And when that happens, the ROI goes down a lot because you're administering it to people who wouldn't get hospitalized otherwise. I completely agree. Uh, I'm very much an evidence-based, practice evidence-based medicine as best I can. So I follow our guidelines and our guidelines, almost everybody qualifies. Anyone with a BMI greater than 25 qualifies for Regeneron, the monoclonal antibodies. And that's a lot of people. And it's Um, 10 grand a pop. Yeah. If you present it that way to a person, maybe they would change their mind. But again, we discussed. Whereas on the vaccine, I I assume that it costs about $200 between the vaccine itself and the administration fee and the fact that you're doing it twice, except for J&J. So that's why the ROI is so great. And and the vaccines have a side benefit, of course, that they prevent infections among other people, which Regeneron doesn't do. Also, what amazes me is the lack of understanding still. In general, I've had a patient who came from the airport and he was traveling with his COVID because he said he got the monoclonal antibody, which cured him of his COVID. Now, obviously, there was some education upon getting the monoclonal antibody that probably was inefficient or ineffective. So, Josh, can you clarify for us? We're hearing a lot about these pills 
And then you talked about monoclonal antibodies and vaccines. The pills aren't preventive in nature. They don't. No, no, they're treatments. They, they basically target elements of the viral machinery. One causes more mutation. One causes, I think, blocks RNA or something. They're antivirals, basically. That's their goal. But they are not preventative and they don't prevent spread. They hopefully limit the scope of the infection. I think of it as it slows the reproduction of the virus that gives the body an opportunity to mount the immune response in time. Yeah, I think that's right. So the monoclonal antibody currently that we have is IV only, or some places in the country are giving it uh, intramuscular. But when you get it IV, you have to get an IV. It's a multi-hour process because it takes an hour to give. There's anaphylaxis. You can have allergic reaction to it, so it be watched. And then the pill obviously would be a lot easier to administer. But That's right. The big advantage of the pills is that they're pills. Yeah. Yeah, But basically, I say to patients, it decreases the chances that you have to be in the hospital and Mm. decrease the severity of the symptoms. But you're still transmissible. You're still infectious. And everything else still applies. Yeah. Josh, from what I read, the Merck one had kind of disappointing results, like it was 30% effective. But Pfizer hasn't published on the FDA website yet their results, but their press release, which obviously was designed for investors because it was all, you know, had all that Wall Street's nonsense in it, said it was 90%. And that remains to be seen because Merck said it was 90% originally too. And then when the data they turned into FDA, it was nowhere close to that. So we'll see on Pfizer because they haven't released it on the FDA website yet. Will, I think it was the end of our last episode, you admittedly needed to get on your soapbox and you needed to talk about how if a variant was going to emerge, it was going to come out of a lesser resourced country that wasn't able to get the number of vaccines that they wanted to get or they needed to get. And sure enough, we've seen this Omicron variant emerge from somewhere in Southern Africa is the best educated estimate. What's the latest with COVAX? What are the global implications right now? And do you think that this new variant is going to change any of our mindsets on how we approach this thing? A couple of questions there. The first one is, COVAX was a great idea, and I fully supported it, and I do think it has made a difference. But there were just two key elements that just made it not nearly as successful as it could have been. Number one is that that's the developed countries just did not contribute as much as they should have to the COVAX effort. But more than that, and a bigger issue than that, is that the developed countries, including the U.S., did not compel the vaccine manufacturers to release their intellectual property to allow other countries to manufacture the vaccine. And that administrative decision not to force the vaccine manufacturers to disclose their formula had an enormous impact and slowed this thing down dramatically. And it needed to have happened exactly one year ago. When President Biden took office, that needed to be the first thing that happened is that we needed to say, look, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson paid for their own R&D. Novavax, you guys, we paid for your research and development. You are releasing the intellectual property and you're doing it right now. 
And that would have allowed places like India to know how to make those vaccines a long time ago and affordably. And COVAX would have been in a much better position to have a much bigger supply for developing countries. But because we chose not to require the manufacturers, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about Moderna and Pfizer in this country, they didn't release the information that was needed, the recipe for their vaccine. And that was a huge problem. So it wasn't just the lack of financial resources that made COVAX less successful than it needed to be. It was administrative decisions made by governments to not compel their contractors to release that information. And that's shameful. And as a result, the vaccination rates in developing countries was woefully inadequate. It's not rocket science, what I said. Going back to last summer, you can listen to our podcast on my ranting on this. There's going to be a variant that comes out of developing countries, and the only way to prevent that is that global vaccine equity, and it just never happened. And lo and behold, we have this new variant that came out of Africa somewhere, as far as we know, probably not South Africa. They just have the good research institutions that are able to pick it up. And that's why I'm glad you said it was somewhere in Africa, because they picked it up. And then, by the way, then we punish them right away. You can't come to this country anymore. Even though everyone's required to get tested 24 hours before departure, we're still going to stop people from eight countries in Africa from coming to the U.S. Shameful decision on the part of this administration, in my opinion. <laughs> what's got, what's uh, Omicron going to do? I think the Omicron variant is so incredibly transmissible that now the timeline is over. It's like what's going to happen is the people that haven't been vaccinated at this point, by and large, they're going to get infected with Omicron. I mean, it's just that it's almost I wouldn't say it's like measles, but it's close. Infections are going to be with Omicron is how this is going to end. And it's going to infect people so fast. I'm crossing my fingers that it's a lot less lethal and not just a little less lethal, because if you look at like what's going to happen, even in Arizona, you can say, look, our hospital systems are already swamped. This Omicron variant is going to rifle through the rest of the unvaccinated people. And it needs to be a lot less lethal if it's not going to completely overwhelm the hospital system because it's remarkable. Like Josh talked about at the top, it really and, and remember, this is compared to Delta and Delta. We, we were talking about how this was so much more than Alpha and Alpha. We'd say, oh, boy, that UK variant Alpha. Now we're calling it. Boy, that was a lot worse than the California variant. And this is just this thing's on steroids. Yeah. I think anyone who thinks that the choices between get vaccinated and not get vaccinated is fooling themselves. The choice is between yeah. getting vaccinated or getting Omicron. Yeah. That's the choice. Yeah. Yeah. I've read uh, recently they started circulating. Will, you can tell me the official name of it, but basically what happens when hospitals start having to limit resources. Yeah. And the triage system that happens. I know that was kind of a discussion at the beginning of all this, but I've seen that come kind of come up of yeah. there very well may be a time where resources have to be limited. So oh, how is it well, decided? Let's dive into this. I mean, this is one of the things, right? Because there is a certain population who, whether they're vaccinated or not, is seeing this thing and saying, yes, it's going to spread a lot. Hopefully this thing is less severe. So therefore we don't have to worry as much about it. But the problem with that is that if you have a large number of people who are infected and a small percentage still go to the hospital, that is still a large number of people that's going to right. hospitals at a time where the hospitals are already full. Right. So that's where contingency standards of care and crisis standards of care 
come into play? Yeah, so we're already in contingency standards of care. This is what's happening, and you see it every day. Changes in admission criteria. So getting past the triage nurse is very different today than it was in May. So changes in how you get into the hospital. Changes in who gets discharged. Do you like you might have a patient that you would normally have kept for a couple more days, but you're like, we need this bed to clear for the people that are on hold in the ED. Is there anywhere we can discharge this patient? So changes in how you do discharges. Those are two of the big things that are happening and will continue to happen at an accelerated rate. ED holds, which we've already talked about, you get tertiary triage changes. So people in the general ward floor that would normally get pushed up or need to get intensive care stay in general ward. Likewise, people maybe need to get out of the ICU but have no place safe to go. They don't have enough nursing homes to send the persons down to a subacute. And then there's ratios, which is happening now. And it means, let's say, in a, on a normal group of patients, you'd have three patients to one nurse. Now that's five to one. Here's what you do. You change your staffing ratios. You change your admission criteria. You change your discharge criteria. And you make different decisions on primary, secondary, and tertiary or triage and who gets in. Those are the main kind of things on contingency standards of care. And then you progress, and we are progressing, and we are already there for ECMO, which is crisis standards of care, where you say, okay, these are the resources that we have. This is the limit of our capacity, and we're going to make decisions about who doesn't get care. They're doing that with ECMO. There's people that would benefit from an ECMO machine. They're intubated, very critically ill patients, and there's, well, there's 17 ECMO machines, and they're all used. So you either have to pull somebody off to put someone on or not, and then they just stay intubated. So we're at crisis standards of care at the top end, and that is going to keep progressing, in my opinion, back further and further back into the ICU. And so that's what crisis standards of care is, is like making life and death decisions. Contingency standards of care, which was hopefully we can mostly stay in contingency, that's ratios, changes in discharge, changes to admission. And ultimately, in our plan that we wrote for public health readiness, in the end, we wrote into that preparedness document the last thing is for to have the governor do an executive order that changes the scope of practice for practitioners so that everyone moves up one level of practice, even though they haven't had the clinical training necessarily for it. And that way you can increase your staffing levels using the same people by expanding their scope of practice. You're basically having a workforce that's lesser qualified taking care of individuals. Out of necessity. That's and- something we haven't even talked about really, right? Is Will, you're mentioning the staff to patient ratio. When you increase that ratio, you can go from three patients to one staff to five patients to one staff, and then all the way up farther than that. You start missing things. Patients get angry because they're waiting longer to get on the bedpan or to get their medications. The nurses get so stressed out because you're essentially just doubling or slightly doubling their workload with no other help or compensation. And they get left holding the bag when something goes wrong. Yes. Yes. What Will said is exactly what's happening. We have emergency medicine residents, so they're physicians, but they're physicians in training for emergency medicine. And in medicine, you teach and you learn that everyone should get the same care, regardless of circumstances, right? Just because we're busy doesn't mean that this person should get suboptimal care or should not get what they need. But it is very difficult. As Will said, people get discharged and you're like, wow, 
three years ago, I never would have discharged this patient. I would keep them for another 24 hours and observe them, but we don't have the space. We don't have the capacity. So you're going to have to go home. And if you get worse, come back and we'll see what happens. So they're painting a rosy picture of the future right now, aren't we? Christmas is approaching. Holidays are approaching. Should we all cancel our Christmas plans and our holiday travel plans and just sit at home? No. If you're vaccinated, have fun. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Will said it earlier and I think he's right. You know, um, people who are vaccinated can can and should get together. Um, And if they're going to invite somebody who's unvaccinated, that person should take an antigen test the day they're coming. Keep them. Here's what we're doing is we got some rapid tests in the cabinet because we have some people with questionable status, (laughs) Um, which they wouldn't. I know these people aren't going to come with their own kit. They're not going to come with their own kit, but we got them in back stock. And let me show you how it works. (laughs) Yes. Yes. As individuals, what are your tricks to keeping a level head during all of this? I made a realization recently, which I think that as a healthcare worker, I'm constantly stressed out and like, when is this going to end? And when will this get better? I came to the realization recently that this is the new normal, which is really hard to accept because it is a hard normal. You know, going to work is not a walk in the park. It is harder than it's ever been before. So this is the new normal, I guess, looking at it for me, that kind of looks at it for in a little bit fresher light, but it also extremely worries me about the future of the workforce. Because if this is the new normal, I think there are going to be fewer people interested in healthcare. As I said, we train new physicians and new physicians coming into the workforce are already tired to a degree that I've never seen. I've been doing this for 11 years. And before that, I was a resident for five years. So I've seen 16 years and I've never seen incoming nurses, incoming doctors that are already tired. So that is super scary. And As I mentioned before, for my personal family, we are masking and we are still being pretty careful because we have one three-year-old that's not vaccinated. I'm really looking forward to him being vaccinated because I think that will give our family a level of comfort so that my children can can go back to living a more normal life. My six-year-old who's fully vaccinated requested to not wear her mask at recess. And I said, once you are fully vaccinated, you can not wear your mask at recess as long as you wear it all the other times. We just got my two-year-old a Spider-Man mask, and he is all about mask wearing all of a sudden. So. <laughs> Amazing. Right, right, right. <laughs> For me, a personal trick is just loving the fact that I live in Arizona and I can be outdoors a lot. I try to spend a lot of time outside now. As for me, your question was about being grounded. And one of the things that has helped me a lot is that I have a focus group of one at home, which is my wife. And so, like, she looks at my Twitter feed and stuff, and she'd be saying, like, you know, that sounded... Like, you weren't talking about evidence. That got a little personal. (laughs) Um, So, like, she keeps me grounded on my advocacy, holding me back from ripping in too much to elected officials. You do that? (laughs) We all occupy a unique and important space in the advocacy continuum. Open mic time. What else should our audience be thinking about as we move into the holiday season? I want to mention that influenza is back. The flu is here. We've been seeing, I think it's flu A, but it's around, which is kind of sad because that means that we're not washing hands and masking and 
covering her coughs. But that is adding a kind of new element to something to watch out for. And we've even seen patients with influenza and COVID and they felt horrible. They did okay. So remember to get those flu shots. Yes. Gather together with other people who are vaccinated. For people who aren't, have them tested on the day of getting together. As much as you can do outdoors, do outdoors. Often in Arizona, that's not too bad these days. It's yeah. not too bad. I also feel like we are oftentimes the only masked people. We went to a birthday party. There were not a lot of masked people. It was outside, which was good. But also, if you feel like you need to wear one, wear one. And please respect the people that do. Will, things our audience should be thinking about as we go into the holiday season? Hey, if you're vaccinated, have fun. You know? Enjoy the season. As always, thank you, Kara, Josh, and Will, for offering your experience and insights into this most pressing issue. Dr. LeBaire said it best. The question is no longer, do I get vaccinated or stay unvaccinated? The question is now, do I get vaccinated or do I get Omicron? The rate at which Omicron spreads is shocking even to the experts with decades of experience in infectious disease. We don't know exactly what the future holds, but we can expect an unprecedented spike in COVID-19 infections early in the new year. And that means more of our neighbors getting sick and more people ending up in hospitals that are already at maximum capacity. The good news though, is that early evidence shows vaccinations and boosters are still effective at preventing infection and reducing severity of the disease. As Will stated, if you're vaccinated, have fun, enjoy the holidays, be safe, and consider having a few of those at-home tests on standby, but have fun. If you're not yet vaccinated, now is the time. Do so as soon as possible. From all of us at Vitalist Health Foundation, we wish you a happy and healthy holidays, and we look forward to seeing you, hopefully in person, in the new year. As always, many thanks to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you enjoyed this episode, you can access all of our episodes at vitalisthealth.org podcast or by searching for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.